The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Reopen this economy. The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99. And 105.7 FM HD2. Here we are in Cleveland now, just more than a day away from the first presidential debate. We'll have complete political coverage on what that New York Times tax story means, plus what's going on with the Supreme Court. We're going to break down the latest on the Supreme Court. How will Amy Coney Barrett shake up the 2020 race and the healthcare case set to begin on November 10th. We've got a lot to get through. Plus, the S&P 500 jumps the most in two weeks as banks advance. We are broadcasting live in downtown Cleveland, where we are staying inside of the Marriott for the first first presidential debate. It's set to begin tomorrow night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. 90-minute debate. 90 minutes. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden versus President Trump. 90 minutes, no interruptions. Chris Wallace, Fox News, he's going to be moderating the debate. They're already trading jabs. And no doubt that New York Times tax story going to come up. Uh, and of course, the Supreme Court pick. We're going to cover the tax story. We're going to cover the lay of the land. Of course, I'll give you a full preview of the of what's going on in here in Cleveland. But I, I want to go to the Supreme Court because what a remarkable remarkably busy, busy weekend as it relates to uh, to the Supreme Court. Judge Amy Coney Barrett at the White House Saturday with her seven children, seven children, her husband there, and President Trump uh, really, you know, giving his debut, cementing, potentially, cementing the Supreme Court on a rightward trajectory for generations to come, for, for several years to come. The third pick, his third pick for for the Supreme Court. I am so incredibly grateful to have our first guest with us. His name is Mark Chenoweth. He's the executive director at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. He is also the former chief of staff to Congressman Mike Pompeo. Of course, now we know him as the former CIA director and the current secretary of state. I would add maybe a one-day presidential candidate, but you know, I don't want to get in trouble, Mark. Mark Chenoweth, how will Amy <laughs> Coney Barrett, how will she impact the Supreme Court and, and, and moving it to the right? Well, I think that, it, you know, it's too soon to say how she will uh, impact the court, but I think that uh, her, from, from everything that she has said and from what we've seen in, in her opinion, she does appear to come from that more textualist and originalist school that Justices uh, Scalia and Thomas uh, hail from. And so I think that, that we could expect at least her approach to statutory questions 
uh, will be more of a textual, a careful textualist approach, and that her approach to constitutional questions uh, will take into consideration the original meaning of various constitutional provisions. You know, and I think I think so much of, of what we've heard over the past couple of days and its immediate impact uh, on the 2020 race has been on abortion rights. And, and you know, to be honest, I, I think there's only one Supreme Court justice who has uh, weighed in on Roe v. Wade directly. Do you expect her and her confirmation hearings to answer directly before members of the Senate Judiciary Committee if she's asked about Roe v. Wade, or do you think she'll give an open-ended answer, and why might that be? I think it's uh, almost guaranteed that she'll give an, an open-ended answer. And you know, back when I was uh, in the Department of Justice during the, the Bush administration back in the 2002-2004 a time frame. I worked in the Office of Legal Policy. We worked on uh, preparing judges for confirmation hearings. And the typical uh, preparation for, for judges involved you know, trying to get them to answer those kinds of, of hot-button questions. And the, you know, the judges know pretty well that if they go down that path of giving an answer to any hot-button question, then they can't very well justify not giving an answer to how they would vote on any other hot-button question. And so that's why these uh, confirmation hearings, that's why at these confirmation hearings you hear the, the nominees tend to avoid giving direct answers to those sorts of things because they don't want to prejudge any issue uh, that's going to be coming before them. So, so it'll be an open-ended answer if, if they ask her directly about Roe v. Wade or, or any other question that could come before her. And I think that's important, especially as we're as we're in the real time of final sprint up to the November 3rd elections. Mark Chenoweth is with us. He's the former chief of staff to Congressman Mike Pompeo. You know, a huge case that I think also will be front and center uh, of this presidential cycle is, of course, health care, because on November 10th, if she's confirmed on November 10th is when the Supreme Court is set to take up an Affordable Care Act ruling that really calls into question and could rule ultimately on the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, uh, or I'm sorry, of the constitutionality uh, of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. And in fact, in, in Biden's comments in the lead up uh, to the, the first debate, Every comment that he's released from his campaign has mentioned health care. I think he's really going to hammer home on health care. I was dusting up on some of the uh, court cases that they're calling her Amy Coney Barrett, ACB, that ACB wrote about earlier this year. And she said uh, on an immigration case, quote, litigation is not the vehicle for resolving policy disputes, end quote. How might that show us how she could potentially rule on the health care case uh, that they're going to hear in November? Well, it, it could mean that she views these sorts of, of cases as not about the underlying substantive policy question, but rather about whether or not the various players in the, uh, you know, in the legislation uh, process have behaved appropriately in terms of their own role. You know, if if the uh, if the Congress has done what it's supposed to do, if the president has done what it's supposed to do, if the agency has done what it's supposed to do, then it's not the place of the judiciary to second guess the underlying policy determinations that are made. But there is a very specific constitutional process that's in place for passing laws, and if the various actors are acting outside of those approved constitutional channels, uh, then it is the role of the judiciary to uh, throw the penalty flag and say, no, wait a minute, 
you can't do it that way. You have to go back uh, and do it a different way if you're going to do it. And we've seen you know, Chief Justice Roberts uh, say that to the Trump administration a couple of times uh, in the census case, uh, for example. And, uh, and you, you might see Amy Coney Barrett share in, I don't know about that case in particular, but she might view those sorts of uh, cases as, mm. uh, as ones where the, the rules weren't followed in the, in the process. Really fascinating. Let me follow up on that point because, you know, Mark Cheddar is on the line and, and, and really he what he does so well is he dives into the weeds of so many of these issues that are incredibly important to the financial services world. You look at something like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, for example, and there have been uh, some potential litigation, especially over the next couple of years, or you look at the EPA and the Environmental Protection Agency and, and cases that might come up before the Supreme Court. In terms of financial services and the economy, do we know anything about how uh, ACB, where she fits in on the ideological spectrum of the current judges that are on the, on the court? Uh, in terms of financial services cases in particular, I, I don't know. I, uh, I'll have to do another pass through her her Seventh Circuit docket and see if there are any financial services cases that, that we overlook. Yeah, I haven't but, seen any, yeah. Yeah, uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, you bring up the Consumer Financial Protection uh, Bureau, and I think that's a great example uh, of a, an agency that was brought into being with a very different set of, uh, of structures than any other agency that's ever existed uh, before. Uh, in American history. And, and so I think that regardless of this nomination, we're going to continue to see uh, lawsuits against the CFPB challenging the unconstitutional nature of that agency's uh, structure. And it, it could well be that, uh, that Justice Barrett would be open uh, to those uh, sorts of challenges. Speaking from the perspective of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, I certainly hope that's the case because we're <laughs> one of those organizations that has deep concerns about the unconstitutional structure of the CFPB. Mark Chenoweth, thank you so much, sir, for your time. I truly appreciate it. He is the executive director at the New Civil Liberties Alliance and the former chief of staff to Congressman Mike Pompeo. Coming up next, we talk about the markets, what went on today on Wall Street. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, broadcasting live from downtown Cleveland. I'm ready for the debate. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Really fascinating to uh, check in with Mark Chenoweth there. He's the former chief of staff to Congressman uh, Mike Pompeo. I remember covering Congressman Pompeo back on the day on Capitol Hill. Remember all the Benghazi hearings and whatnot? Speaking of uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Nick Wadhams and Saleh Mosin reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal that the Trump administration is considering fresh sanctions to sever Iran's economy from the outside world, except in limited circumstances. What they would do is target more than a dozen banks and labeling the entire 
financial sector off limits. This according to three people familiar with the matter. He was, Secretary Pompeo was uh, very pointed in his criticism of Tehran in his interview last night with Mark Levin over on Fox News. Speaking of what's happening globally, let's check in with the markets. Uh, reading from the Bloomberg Terminal, U.S. stocks jumped after four weeks of declines and European shares added the most in three months amid broad gains for equities. The dollar weakened. Banks led the S&P 500 index to its Biggest gain in two weeks as investors found buying opportunities after the gauge fell to its lowest since July last week. Joining us now to help us understand everything that's been going on uh, today and you know how they're reacting to, with all this volatility coming up in the next couple of months, really, not just weeks, Katie Greenfield. She is Bloomberg Markets and ETFs reporter. Katie, welcome to the program. Thanks for... Uh, for joining me, S&P 500 jumped the most in two weeks today as the banks advanced. What happened to the markets? Well, it was a really strong day overall. You saw all the major equity indexes end higher. And it was a really big departure from last week, which was the S&P 500's fourth straight week of losses. In terms of what was boosting sentiment here. You did see some progress on stimulus negotiations. Speaker Pelosi said that the Democrats still want more spending from the White House, but just the fact that the two sides are talking was taken as an optimistic sign in markets. So that helped broaden out today's rally just from sectors like tech, which has just been leading the charge over the past couple months. Instead, you saw nearly every stock in the S&P finish higher today. And beaten down sectors like financials and energies and energy were really leading gains today, which you haven't seen in a while. You know, and it's and it's why why is that? Answer me that. Why do you think that is? Well, the banks are a tricky situation since they really depend on on yields. It's really hard for banks to turn a profit when you see the yield curve flattening and flattening. So the fact that the Fed has introduced so much uh, stimulus into the markets, that's really tamped down long-end yields, and that is just crushing banks. And uh, even though yields are pretty much flat today, just the optimism that maybe we'll get more stimulus, maybe that will translate into maybe some inflation down the road, the Fed might potentially hike rates in the next couple of years, that's giving the banks a little bit of a boost because they're still down on the year. This is a very beaten-down sector. Well, Katie, in my neck of the woods, and, and back in Washington, D.C., I'm in Cleveland for the debate, but back in Washington, D.C., I was really struck to see that it wasn't just Republicans, Democrats as well. Both parties, especially on the Senate Banking Committee, both parties, whether it's Sherrod Brown or whether it's uh, Pat Toomey, really praising the central bank for, for their policy remarks uh, or for their policy position and, and the shift with regards to inflation. So, they, you know, Fed Chair Jay Powell uh, really garnering some high praise in both parties. It's rare these days uh, for, for what he's been doing with, with inflation. Let me ask you, because I'm looking at the medical data and, you know, public health officials, they're they're warning that the U.S. could take heart at the end of this. Uh, I'm sorry, that the U.S. really could have an increase of cases in the second wave over the next uh, couple of weeks. How are investors uh, gauging the, the data on the health front with the pandemic and, and the potential for, for a second wave? 
Well, this is striking because, like you said, there's a lot of warning signs out there just in terms of the path of the virus, let alone yeah. the path of a vaccine. But today it's interesting. You're seeing what we've been calling the reopening trade doing well. You know, if you look down the list of the top performers in the stock market today, it's companies like Boeing, like Delta, like the Gap. Those are all stocks that would benefit from the American economy opening up, opening up again, whereas if we went into another lockdown situation, those companies would be really hard hit. But those companies, again, they're up today, which is another departure from last week when you saw stocks like Amazon and Apple, which would obviously do well if we're all stuck at home again. They had their best week relative to the reopening trade since June last week. But this today, it's a completely different story. But you know, right now, investors seem happy to pile back into these economic reopening trades, even though, like you say, it's a really murky path from here. Katie Greenfield's on the line. She's a Bloomberg Markets reporter and uh, uh, follows all the ETFs for us. You know, I, I find it really striking just how people like yourself, as well as economists, really just the data that they're utilizing, whether it's restaurant reservation mes- metrics or even uh, traffic uh, on, on the roads in order to try to track where things are going. I, I want to find follow up on a point that you just made, and it's something that I think has emerged that maybe is a little bit hidden, which is that the one thing about the United States that's very different than, say, smaller countries in Europe is that we have had states, uh, large populated states, that have remained with restrictions in place or haven't. So it's not like the entire country would go into a blanket lockdown as, say, other smaller countries would. So does that almost buffer, serve as a buffer, or do you think that that has uh, made its way into the economic analysis uh, of of the potential of a second wave, that it wouldn't necessarily be, uh, you know, a blanket shutdown? I think that's a very fair point. And I mean, if you think about what really spooked people in terms of the European lockdowns, it was cities such as London, question marks over whether they can remain open. Whereas I'm talking to you from New York City right now, which is open, yeah. and you're, you're seeing cases controlled in huge states like California, like New York, sort of the financial centers are still doing well in terms of cases. And I think that is helping keep sentiment from really going off a cliff when investors sit down and consider what is the next few months going to look like? So let me just let me ask you uh, about something else. I mean, I look at the VIX, you know, the volatility index. I feel like investors are, are bracing for the absolute worst, that they might not get uh, an outcome on the election or some political volatility. And, and even, you know, with the Supreme Court and whatnot, that they're looking long term into uh, into December. And in fact, they're all moving to they're moving some money to Japan. <laughs> You're right. You know, if you do look under the hood and you look at, you know, what are the VIX futures contact contracts pricing in month by month, you're seeing move people move out from just the November contract, just November 3rd, the election day, into December, into January, because the risk of a delayed result is real. Trump has all but promised that he will contest the election results. And just the fact that we might see this uptick in mail-in ballots, that could cause a delay, just the sheer mechanics of voting. So the investors I'm speaking to are definitely preparing for the possibility that we won't have a president named on November 3rd. And if we get a repeat of the 2000 ballot recount, that took a month to settle. So it could be a very rocky month that we're heading into as we really get into election season here. Well, exactly. And it's just it's just truly, truly uh, 
remarkable, and especially you know with the new prime minister of Japan, uh, Suga. Uh, it'll be fascinating just to see the dynamics of of how he fares on the on the world stage. It will be really really remarkable. All right, quickly before I let you go, what else are you watching this week on the eco front? Oh man, well I am absolutely watching the debate tomorrow night. That's yeah, not- same. <laughs> I'm here. I'm in Cleveland. We'll both be tuned in, but other than that, you do have the jobs report on Friday, and that will be the last jobs report we get before election day. So all eyes will be on that. No doubt. No doubt. And uh, just anecdotally speaking, uh, here on the famous East 4th Street in downtown Cleveland, most of the restaurants were still closed. They were shut down. I mean, it's it's really remarkable. That's the the main part. I mean, back in the RNC four years ago, it was the life of the party. All right. Our thanks to Katie Greenfield, Bloomberg Markets reporter. Much more coming up next. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. The final countdown to the first presidential debate. Uh, I am live in Cleveland and we've got a complete, complete coverage for it. A preview. How will the Supreme Court justice play ACB over the weekend at the White House? Formal unveiling. We have every angle covered on the healthcare front, on the abortion front, on every angle of the Supreme Court pick. Plus, we check in with Congressman Dwight Evans, a Democrat from Pennsylvania. All that and and that New York Times tax story. The president doesn't have much to say about it. He's calling it fake news. Joe Biden is not. Lots to get through. I'm broadcasting live from downtown Cleveland, Ohio, Ohio, Ohio. Because tomorrow night, of course, at 9 p.m. Eastern New York time is the first presidential debate. 90 minutes uninterrupted. President Trump versus Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. Stakes really have never been higher. And when I touch down, it's raining here in Cleveland. But when I touched down earlier this morning, I went right to East 4th Street. And that is one of the best places for the restaurants. And I remember it back four years ago for the uh, Republican National Convention. It's all shut down. I'm telling you, it's hard to find a restaurant that's open. Really remarkable things in this city of Cleveland. Even more shut down, dare I say, uh, than than in Washington, D.C. So we're going to have a full preview of the uh, of the debate, obviously, but a big news weekend. And now some strategy starting to emerge from the left on what they're going to do with Judge Amy Coney Barrett, ACB, as the uh, Republicans are calling her uh, as she's nominated to the to the high court. And, and we're anticipating that the Republicans, I was talking to sources over the weekend, that it's going to be about a four to six day confirmation process. Democrats are limited in terms of just how much they can stall or slow down 
this process just because of the math that the Republicans have the advantage in the upper upper court. So the, the confirmation hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Republican-controlled Senate Judiciary Committee, are going to begin about October 11th, maybe go a little later than that. Uh, and and they're going to cover everything before the Senate Judiciary uh, Committee. So it's been the talk of the town. Obviously, it has implications on 2020. We'll dive into that. It, of course, has implications on that Affordable Care Act, the health care, Obamacare uh, uh, case that's going to be before the Supreme Court scheduled on the docket for uh, November 10th. November 10th. So we'll dive into that as well. Take a listen to what President Trump had to say about the politicization of this moment on the Supreme Court. Here's the president from over the weekend. The New York Times even said her religion is not consistent with American values, and I'll stand up for her and Catholicism, and we will fight the Democrat attacks. I mean, they're attacking a major religion. I think that's a fight we're going to win pretty easily. Catholicism front and center as Biden looks to become only the second Catholic president in American history behind former President John F. Kennedy. Catholics having correctly chosen the president of the United States every time since 2004. Recent polls have Trump trailing, trailing in the Catholic vote by single digits. So still within striking distance. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, a Catholic. Uh, and and so right there, the issue of religion now injected into this. Uh, and then take a listen to Biden, what he had to say about health care in that all-important November 10th case. Here he is. The judge has, written, has a written track record, written track record of, of disagreeing adamantly with the Supreme Court's decisions on two occasions upholding the ACA. It is remarkable. Louis Miranda is with us. He is former DNC communications director and director of communications and politics at Alloy. And John Sidalides is a geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and diplomacy consultant to the State Department. Louis, you know, I just outlined it there. You've got collision course of issues in this nomination process. And really, it looks like Democrats are limited in terms of what they can do to stop this nomination from being confirmed. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right, procedurally speaking, um, and, and great to be on with you, Kevin, by the way, but uh, procedurally speaking, Democrats don't have the upper hand because uh, Republicans are in control of the Senate. Um, but that's exactly what's motivating voters. I think that um, there might be a short-term victory for Republicans here, uh, but ultimately, uh, people are getting fired up about uh, not just uh, what they're seeing in terms of the hypocrisy. I mean, the, Judge Amy Barrett-Cohen herself was someone who, uh, when Merrick Garland was nominated, insisted that that should be left to the next president. Uh, and, and I'm not sure that the American people like that hypocrisy generally, much less when they look at her deeply, deeply conservative attitude. Look, uh, you know, at, at Alloy, what we do is provide data to the progressive ecosystem. And what we're seeing from our partners' work is just that there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. Uh, there's an organization called Vote Like a Woman, for example. Um, they're a, a group that got together literally just at some of the women's marches in 2017 after Trump's inauguration and decided to do something about this themselves. They've now put through millions of voter registration status checks uh, through our systems. And uh, it's an example of just how much energy and how much enthusiasm is happening, not, not just within the party structure, 
not just within the campaigns, but just from people who are fed up with what they're seeing uh, from this president and who want to change. And so uh, when you look at how bad and uh, Amy Barrett Cohen Supreme Court seat would be for women in this country, you see a lot of, of uh, long-term political damage for Republicans uh, because it's just, you know, uh, positions that would basically knock down uh, everything uh, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg worked so hard to do. And by the way, that would be terrible for the economy. It would just be terrible for the economy. In countries where women are, are limited in, in all of their rights, uh, there's a huge economic impact, and, and, and that would be the case here. And, and people recognize that, both men and women across the country. So I think short-term, yeah, you know, they have the advantage. Long-term, it's damaging. Well, I want to I just I wanna follow up with you before I, before I move. Well, let me, let me, let me allow uh, John Sinalides to respond, because you know, th- from, from a political short-term perspective, this appears to be a home run in battleground states where, where there are a significant a number of Catholics, Pennsylvania I'm thinking of, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, where I am broadcasting now for the debate. And beyond that, uh, as it relates to the Environmental Protection Agency, as it relates to uh, other financial regulatory matters, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's going to be fascinating to watch to watch those those confirmation hearings in real time as we're as we're also covering debates, John. She's a textualist, she's an originalist, and she espouses a conservative judicial disposition. There's no doubt about it. But as long as the hearings are about policy and about the proper role of a justice in a constitutional order where they're not making the law but simply adjudicating whether or not laws and regulations are constitutional— I think it's a very fair debate to have. Yeah. And I think the president, from his perspective, is wise to put Senate Democrats on notice to not make the justices or the judges, I should say it's not a justice yet, uh, not make her faith, her religion, an issue. But I think there are going to be elements outside the Senate that are going to do so, and that could backfire on the Biden campaign's efforts to try to consolidate the Catholic vote that, as you correctly know, has voted correctly for every elected president since 2004. So there's going to be a very careful balance over here. But I think for the most part, this is going to be about uh, her conservative philosophy. She's not going to forecast how she's going to vote on any issue. Including abortion. All right, hold it right there. We've got much more coming up. I'm Kevin Cirilli, live from Cleveland. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. That song is because I'm in Cleveland. Kev is in Cleveland. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And we're ready for the debate. I got to tell you, debates are truthfully one of my favorite things to cover in politics because there's so much that goes into them. And I have no clue what to expect for this first presidential debate. All I know is I touch down at the Cleveland airport. I see a huge sign of Bruce Springsteen in the airport, Cleveland airport, because this is where uh, 
what's it called? The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, I, I, we're, we're driving into the city. David Suchiman, our, our coordinating field producer, I see the triangles. That's what the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is. And um, I said, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready. We go. We get an immediate COVID test. We're all being tested rapidly to see if we have the, the COVID-19, the nose swab. We tested, thankfully, clear. So we're good to go. And we're going to pick up the credentials after the show tonight. We're going to have complete continuing coverage. And things that I'm going to be looking for, as my uh, friend and mentor, Tom Keene of Bloomberg Surveillance, always tells me to do, what is the vibe? What is the vibe on the various campaigns and their surrogates? They're out in full force. I can tell you the Trump campaign is out in full force. They're trying to flood the airwaves, flood the zone. Uh, and quite honestly, it's a contrast with Biden world simply because if you look at the polls, it's going to be remarkable to see uh, polling-wise, Biden right now, even in those battleground states, has the upper hand. But President Trump in striking distance, especially in a state like Florida. So that's why all of these things are really on collision courses. Uh, and it's it's remarkable. So the debate, so much riding on them, but we'll have continuing coverage of them. John Sidalides is with me for the hour. John is a geopolitical strategist at uh, Trilogy Advisors and a diplomacy consultant to the State Department. Louis Miranda also with me, former DNC communications director and director of communications and politics at Alloy. John, you know, there was that New York Times tax story which pretty much says the president didn't pay a lot of taxes. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think the president, based upon my reporting, is going to pivot in the debate to use it as an opportunity to talk about tax policy. Democrats are going to do it to talk about uh, economic inequality. I'm not, do, you, do you think, John, that it's going to shake up the dynamics of the, uh, of the debate? No, I really don't. And I think it'll have nearly zero impact on voting patterns over the next six weeks. Look, the, the president's opponents are going to say, see, I told you so. He's a reprobate. The, the president's supporters will say, OK, great. Russia hoax, impeachment. Uh, he insulted the military. Another fake news story. Who cares? So it's all baked into the process already. And don't forget, Kevin, in 2016, the issue of Trump paying taxes was uh, was part of the debate itself with Hillary Clinton. And he actually said uh, by not paying taxes when he didn't have to, quote, that makes me smart. So he's simply going to say this is the, the tax code as it's written. And this New York Times report did not point to a single illegal action by President Trump. No illegal tax avoidance. So if we want to look at the tax code, I think it's a very fair debate. I doubt he's going to bring this up, though. And if Joe Biden does or if a questioner does, Chris Wallace, tomorrow night, Kevin, I think he'll use it as a cudgel against uh, Joe Biden and start to talk about Hunter Biden's transactions with the former mayor of Moscow, with the Chinese company investing in this private equity firm. Remember, Trump is absolutely unpredictable. But if he's attacked on this or feels he has to be defensive, he's going to come back twice as hard against Joe Biden. You know, I'm surprised that we haven't been talking about uh Fidel Castro more, to be honest, especially with uh, the Cuban vote in, in, in Florida. You know, uh, Lewis, let me bring you into this, into, into this conversation. I was looking at the crosstabs of these polls, 
The president is getting more support amongst Hispanic voters. He's, he's outperforming his, his performance from last cycle amongst Hispanics and white working class voters. But Biden is outperforming better than Clinton in last cycle amongst senior citizens and white college graduates. If you look at the lead at the various tracking polls, Biden is doing better against Trump at this period in the race, significantly better than Hillary was doing back at this point. But you know, it, it's, it still seems closer in these battleground states. How important is tomorrow night for Joe Biden, Louis Miranda? Uh, I think it's important for both campaigns. And, you know, remember that Chris Wallace, who's going to be hosting this, uh, moderating this debate, chose several topics, uh, one of which is the Trump and Biden records. And so you can be sure that the tax issue is going to come up. Uh, you know, Biden will have the chance to knock down criticisms of, of his policies and, and to, you know, make it clear that nothing that he would do would have anything but a positive impact on anyone making less than $400,000 a year, which I think is important to debunk um, because it's one of the key attacks that Republicans have been making. Uh, and Trump is going to have to answer for um, uh, what he's doing and how it has hurt uh, communities disproportionately on everything from tax cuts, which have been uh, you know, skewed heavily to just favor millionaires uh, and hurt uh, working people, which I think will be a crux of the Biden argument. It'll be uh, that difference between someone like him who comes from Scranton, who understands uh, working families. And, and as he's laid out in his uh, events, the uh, uh, Park Avenue set like uh, Donald Trump, who looked down their noses at them. And I think that's what the tra tax cut issue could really illustrate that we didn't have in 2016, is that you have an example there of where he thinks he's smarter than working families. He thinks that if you're a working family and your son or daughter went to war, that they're losers because they went to put themselves at risk for the country. Uh, yeah, but, you, but yeah, I, I'm interrupting you. I'm interrupting you. I'm interrupting you because because uh, I want to talk policy, and you know that the Republicans are just going to say, well, that's not true. We've refuted that last night. They, they literally did. So I want to stay out of that because I, I think our audience especially is looking really for, for the policies. But I hear you. It's going to get, I think what both we just heard from Lewis as well as from John, it's going to get personal. There's going to be a lot of, for lack of a better word, political noise for lack of a better word, political theater. But, John, I, I come back to this, and, Lewis, I want to get your take on this in the, in the final segment. We only have a minute left, John. But I come back to this. Maybe this election cycle will be known as the demise of the undecided voter. And Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Surveillance was alluding to this earlier this morning when I was talking with him. But you look at the de demise of the undecided voter. Is this really, in like 45 seconds, John, is this really just a turnout election for both campaigns? To a large degree, yes, Kevin. I don't know that it's the demise of the undecided voter, but it's certainly the diminution of the undecided yes, who used to be words. 20, 25 yes. percent. And we're down to about 10 percent of registered voters have not made up their mind yet about Trump or Biden. Who are they? I want to meet them. I want to meet them here in Cleveland. If you're in, Cle if you're in Cleveland and you're undecided, hit me up. I want to pick your brain. I'm related to a bunch of them. That's what I told Farrow. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. I can tell you one thing. There's not going to be a draw. No one's going to think it was a draw, unlike my Philadelphia Eagles. Ugh. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I'm broadcasting from downtown Cleveland. 
in anticipation of tomorrow night's first presidential debate. We'll have live continuing coverage cross-platform on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio Analysis on the issues on the economy, cutting through all of the political noise. So be sure to uh, check that out with us uh, all throughout the next couple of days. You know, it was a rough weekend. It was a rough weekend. I don't even know if I would have preferred the loss as opposed to the tie as Doug Peterson on the Philadelphia Eagles calls to punt in overtime. Congressman Dwight Evans is with me. He's on the line. He's a Philly congressman, Democrat, representing the uh, Pennsylvania's third congressional district. Congressman, I mean, it was brutal. What is going on with Wentz? <laughs> I can't even laugh, Congressman. Hey, I'm so upset about this. You just, just got to have faith. I you mean, how ma- I've nobody had faith we, in Carson nobody, Wentz for five nobody, years. Nobody thought we'd win the Super Bowl, neither. Right? Well, you know who won us the Super Bowl? Bowl, Nick Foles. Nick Foles won us the Super Bowl. (laughs) He had to have a a team with him. He had to have a team. Look, it's three games. We still got many more games. You know, we have that way of bouncing back. I hope you're right because we weren't – I'm just going to move on because our executive producer, Christine Barada, will say, Kevin, this is a political policy show and not a Philadelphia (laughs) Eagles show. (laughs) All right. Let's talk taxes. (laughs) How's that for a pivot? Let's talk taxes. All right. So you're on the small business uh, committee up in the House of Representatives. I mean, how is this reverberating amongst your Democratic colleagues, this New York Times tax story and President Trump? Well, I'm on small business. I'm on ways and means. And obviously, uh, it just doesn't smell right. Uh, when you think about the average citizens, firefighters, teachers, the, you know, it's, it's like a, uh, a system that is not working. And it's the reason why the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee sued in the first place to have the president uh, expose his tax returns. It is just this question around accountability. So when you look at it, it really looks like he's gained the system. He has been consistent for the last four years in saying because of the audit, he cannot show his information. And now you see his information. And basically you see that, one, he hasn't paid any taxes. And when he did, he only paid $750. I mean, teachers, firefighters, people on the street, um, there's no way in the world that uh, they could do that. And that's not the way the tax structure is supposed to work. And that's why on the Ways and Means Committee, we have that oversight responsibility of any person. Nobody's above it. And small business who are struggling out here based on the pandemic and the economy uh, don't have access to resources. So, again, I think that's the wrong message uh, this president doesn't believe in about accountability. And that really shows he doesn't think he thinks he's above it. I mean, in modern history, he's the only president that has not. Uh, showed his tax returns, and that's that's what any citizen should be upset and outraged about. Well, and I, you know, listen, I, I, I've covered the president for years now, and you know what what he says is essentially, he said. I mean, I remember back on the campaign trail in 2016, he would say he wants everyone who's in the middle, lower middle class, to be able to take advantage of the same low tax rates that the wealthy are able to take advantage of. Take a listen to what the president had to say in the last day uh, about, about the New York Times tax story. Here's the president of the United States. Totally fake news. No, actually, I paid tax, 
But and you'll see that as soon as my tax returns, are, it, it's under audit. They've been under audit for a long time. The IRS does not treat me well. So that's what the president had to say about it. I want to move on with Congressman Dwight Evans. He's a Democrat from Pennsylvania's third congressional district. I want to ask you about housing relief. I know you and House Financial Services Committee Chairwoman Maxine Waters have been really, really two leading voices in the Democratic Party uh, in terms of rent relief for COVID assistance. That's set to expire. You know, you look at people who aren't going to be able to even pay their energy bills in just a matter of, of, of weeks or days even. That's, I mean, it's remarkable. That's another reason why I'm pushing uh, uh, an issue called making houses, making houses matter. It's important because it's very essential when we look at what's occurring, not just in Philadelphia, but across the nation. Uh, Congressman Waters is from California, and she's chair of the Financial Service Committee. We and others have been working together on the need of rental assistance, affordable housing. Uh, we passed the bill, which is in the Senate, uh, deal with low-income tax credit. I mean, these are issues that need to be addressed. Uh, here we have a number of people out on the street homeless. Uh, even the president who, who went out to L.A. and put up some kind of commission, but we haven't seen the results. I mean, well, at the end of the day, we need that initiative to pass, and we, we're, we're kind of pushing to make sure that that initiative is a part of the next relief package. Congressman, I know housing. that Democrats have unveiled – uh, a, a plan that's at $2.4 trillion, significantly less than the than the three-plus trillion that they had originally asked for. I know that Speaker Pelosi, as well as the White House, were continuing negotiations today and over the weekend on more fiscal relief coming. Uh, do you think that this could come before the election or just level with me? Do you think it's going to have to wait until after the election for there to be another stimulus bill? The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Uh, the answer is yes, it could be. You know, they're trying to push to a Supreme Court justice. Yes, we should do relief for people in terms of housing, uh, checks to essential workers, uh, states and local governments. There's no question. We can do what we want to do. Understand that. I mean, we did it in the past. This is very essential to this economy. You know, the chairman of the Federal Reserve said, go big and go bold. That's what he said, chairman of the Federal Reserve. It's clearly, in my opinion, this economy needs that, right? There's a lot of people still in dire need. You look at our unemployment situation, look at the unfairness of income inequality. So there's no question that this is something that we must do. It's not negotiable. We need to get serious and do all we got to do to pass this relief package. But do you think, Congressman, it, can, it, it will happen before the election? And, and I, I, I want to press you on this because I think so many of the questions that I get uh, from from viewers, from listeners, and, and as well as from uh, folks not just in the business community but, but on, on Main Street is, is this – when is this coming? Is it going to have to wait until the next fiscal cliff, so to speak, on December 11th? Is that going to be really the more realistic timetable? Uh, or is there a very narrow, narrow – uh, window to get it done before November 3rd? Well, let me be very uh, direct with you. Look, we passed the HEROES Act three months ago. That's sitting in the Senate. The way this process works is we pass the bill, then the Senate comes to the table and negotiate. 
they have not been serious about that particular process. So the speaker is using all the leverage that she has with the Treasury uh, Secretary to understand that this must be done. So it's not a question of, of, of can it be done. I'm saying to you it can be done. It's a question of political will. All right, and final question for you. Pennsylvania, such a key battleground state. Uh, your uh, part of the state uh, turnout is going to be incredibly important, especially if Democrats hope to, to win back Pennsylvania from uh, President Trump uh, at the presidential level. Uh, just give us the lay of the land uh, as you see things. Uh, Biden is, 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 is uh, polling ahead, though still within, still just by single digits ahead of, of uh, President Trump uh, in Pennsylvania. But uh, what, what are you noticing in terms of uh, early voting and whatnot? Well, you know, that process is just getting started. And I, the vice president, in my view, uh, is being very methodical, what I call block by block. I mean, he's been here. He's coming. He's traveling across the state. He's focusing on all aspects of the state with an agenda, you know, an agenda that is about the people. I mean, health care is primarily the focus that he's talking about. I mean, under the Trump, you were talking about getting rid of Obamacare. And under, under Vice President Biden, he understands the importance of health care and the need for it. So I share with you, I feel very optimistic about Pennsylvania. We're in a better position than we were in 2016, uh, much more organized. Uh, people are, you know, out there yeah. calling everywhere. Even in the pandemic, mm-hmm. they're working much closer together, all aspects of Pennsylvania. I've been around here my entire life, and I tell you, I've never seen the excitement okay. engaged in about getting into getting rid of this this president. All right, Congressman Dwight Evans, a Democrat from Pennsylvania's 3rd Congressional District and an Eagles fan. Come on, Congressman. We got to have the Eagles turn it around. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Such a great song. I'm Kevin Cerulli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. John Sidalides is with us. He is at uh, Trilogy. He's a, he's a geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and diplomacy consultant to the State Department. Louis Miranda is with us, former DNC Communications Director and Director of Communications and Politics at Alloy. It's time now for my favorite part of the program. What is on your radar? I'm in Cleveland. So I'm always, always thinking about the debate for tomorrow. And we're going to make checking in on all of our sources after the show to get uh, some great programming for everyone in the next couple of days. But, John, what's on your radar? You always bring it global. What's on your radar? (laughs) I've got two topics. But first and foremost is the unfortunate breakout of hostilities in an area of the world that's probably unfamiliar to most of your audience, Kevin, but it's the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And the reason this is important is because it potentially involves Russia, Iran, and America's NATO ally in the region, Turkey, each taking sides, several with Armenia, several with Azerbaijan. We're also talking about Azeri oil exports to Israel and gas exports to Europe that could all be affected. If this blows up bigger than it already has, two days of conflict. We're hoping that international mediation can put a lid on it, but a very dangerous powder keg if we don't manage this properly. 
Well, and they've, 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 uh, Armenia has declared martial law. I mean, think about this, folks. Armenia has declared martial law as a result so of the conflict. So has Azerbaijan, Kevin. With, with Azerbaijan. And you, you mentioned yep. the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, area that they're, that they're disputing. It's the size of Delaware. Tell our audience why that something, a piece of land the size of Delaware is bringing a potential proxy, as you just laid out the dynamics of the region, a, a proxy conflict for some other festering issues. Why is that small of land? Great question. This is one of the remnant hangovers of the demise of the Soviet Union in the late 80s and early 90s. And Nagorno-Karabakh is technically uh, Azerbaijani sovereign territory, but it's populated almost completely by ethnic Armenians. There's been a historical rivalry between the two peoples. And so these ethnic Armenians did not want to be governed or controlled by Azeris. So they declared themselves to be a breakaway republic. Armenia and Azerbaijan went to war for three years between 91 and 94. They've never had a peace agreement. There's simply been a ceasefire in place for 25 years. And my guess is this is a cry for international mediation to help resolve this frozen conflict that's now an open war. Wow. Wow. All right. Let me I know I, I want to make sure I get to uh, Lewis before before I give you a second attempt. So but that's a fascinating one. That's also on my radar. I was uh, reading up on that all this morning. Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, Lewis, what's on your radar? On my radar is just the possibility, again, that House Democrats uh, are trying to get another stimulus proposal going. Yes, um, that, that would be huge. I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the market definitely likes the idea of a potential uh, deal. And not only that, but when you think about people who are looking at possibly getting evicted, uh, when you're looking at the, the economic damage from just the mismanagement of the COVID crisis, the CDC director expressing concerns that Trump's new right and uh, doctor at these briefings is giving him misinformation and pushing misinformation. Um, you have to be really concerned that the economic hit we're going to take is only going to keep getting extended. So uh, definitely uh, hopeful that we see a new stimulus proposal and see it moving forward. Uh, definitely a better way to spend time than, than the Supreme Court hearings. But that, Lewis, that's a whole other segment. <laughs> you know, that's so smart because especially with with the Americans, I, I think one of the things we've missed in the media, not just about housing, as you just so correctly point out, and, and the millions of Americans impacted by this, but our utility bills. And the Wall Street Journal notes that in the next month, 80 million households will be without protections for utilities. So utility protection states have really uh, had to do had have, have had to pass various forms of, of legislation state legislations and requirements that protect people uh, struggling with the with the covid collapse of the economy from from shutting out off power 80 million households in America will be without the, are losing those protections in the next month so power uh, utilities I mean it's just it's just another another dynamic uh, to add to this uh, to, to add to this horrific economic collapse. And kids are back yeah. to school. Try to have them do their yeah. schoolwork if they can't even exactly. log online, can't even get the electricity to, to I know, check it's, a laptop. It's just, it's remarkable. All right, here's what's on my radar. It's uh, Oracle and TikTok. A uh, judge blocked the download ban on TikTok uh, yesterday. It was down to like the 11th hour. Because remember, the uh, president wanted to, to ban 
Updates of the TikTok app uh, citing national concer security concerns. And the ruling came down by Judge Carl Nichols of the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., who, by the way, President Trump appointed. Uh, and it was just four hours before the ban was set to take effect. However, after the election is when the administration is continuing with this deal with TikTok. There's all of this back and forth between ByteDance, which owns TikTok, and Oracle and Walmart, which want to go and buy it, uh, and whether or not the U.S. will have a majority ownership on TikTok. It's, it's a fascinating, fascinating, syphious, dynamic ruling about the precedent it sets for U.S. companies and U.S. consumers and whether or not a Chinese-owned app can penetrate into the U.S. market. So that's, that's on my radar today. All right, John, we got like a minute left. What's, on, what's the other thing on your radar? Kevin, thank you for that unsolicited segue. Uh, barring post-election day chaos, there will be an emerging bipartisan consensus in the U.S. Congress in January for a U.S. and international-led push to revoke and rebid the 2022 Winter Olympics, now scheduled in Beijing, citing China's human rights abuses and violations against Uyghurs, Tibetans, Mongolians, Hong Kongers, and its own citizens. And this will likely provoke a major Chinese backlash. In what form exactly, it's unclear, but I see this emerging in January. That's smart. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to start sniffing around on that, John. Uh, and just over the weekend, Je President Xi Jinping of China uh, gave a speech – uh, at the Communist Party about, and he defended his actions in the Xinjiang province against the Uyghur minorities. Defended it, John. Defended it. And of course, this has become a nonpartisan issue in the United States with Republicans and Democrats uh, rightfully criticizing uh, those horrific human rights abuses. Do you believe that? He defended it. She did. Of course he did. Uh, the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party has been undergoing an extraordinarily aggressive and arrogant posture, really since Xi Jinping came to power, but especially since he became president for life about three years ago. And I think we're really in a Cold War uh, of sorts uh, between the yeah. U.S. and China right now. And we'll see this expand to an international coalition, especially given China's COVID concealment of the last eight months. And listen, I've got a lot of respect for Chris Wallace, and I know that, that one of the things I'm looking forward to, as Lewis pointed out earlier in the hour, uh, is, is really getting into the policy. Enough of the theater, enough of the back and forth and the, and the jib-jabs. I mean, these are such serious issues, and I really hope – this is my hope, and I guess I'm getting on a Cerulli soapbox. I don't mean to, but I really hope that we can have some more clarity on, on how each nominee and how each candidate would use their time in the in the Oval Office and as Commander-in-Chief uh, to to set foreign policy with, with China because it's without question going to be the one of the dominant, if not the dominant issue geopolitically for years to come and outlasting either of their times uh, in in the White House. All right, that does it for me. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Thank you to Mark Chenoweth. Thank you to Katie Greenfield. Uh, thank you also to Congressman Dwight Evans and to our panel, Louis Miranda. Always great to catch up with you, Louis, and John Sinalides. You too, John. Uh, I'm in Cleveland. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.